This episode is sponsored by Code Health. Code connects healthcare providers to the largest community of medical coding professionals in the country with over 4,600 domestic certified coders. As a single stop for all coding needs, Code's on-demand model has solved for daily staffing challenges and coding inefficiencies by allowing providers to access the right coder at the right time while gaining insights to better manage their coding operations. To learn more about Code, visit CodeHealth.com, that's K-O-D-E Health.com, or email Code directly at partnerships at CodeHealth.com. Most people would see it as, I'm not strong enough, that's why I'm feeling this way. Taking care of your mental health and new strategies for patient-friendly payment practices, today on Voices in Healthcare Finance, sponsored by Change Healthcare. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Erica Grotto, and I have a new co-host to introduce today, Nick Hutt. Welcome. Hey, Erica. I've gone from a uh, fan of the podcast to a participant, so definitely glad to be here. Very excited to have you here. So Nick, you recently moved into a new role here at HFMA. You are now covering healthcare policy and regulation. So what are some things you're watching right now? Well, in the near term, uh, some of the things I'll be watching for are price transparency, compliance and enforcement. That's a, a major issue in the hospital industry right now. And certainly some of the decisions and regulations coming down from the new administration and just the potential of those to take healthcare policy in a different direction. And then at least somewhat related to this very episode, clinician burnout and the implications of that, number one, from a human standpoint, and then as well from the standpoint of the business of running a hospital. All right. All very important topics and ones that I look forward to hearing more about as well. Mental health seems to be a challenging area for many people, even in the best of times. But during a pandemic, the additional stress and trauma makes things even more difficult. WHO recently released some research on the impact of the pandemic, and Kaiser Family Foundation has done some research in this area as well. So for today's episode, I thought it would be a good idea to step away from work for a moment and talk about mental health. I invited Ranga Krishnan, who is a professor of psychiatry and the CEO of Rush University System for Health, to talk about this important topic. Mental health problems are very common under the best of times. So at any one particular point in time, but one in five individuals could have significant mental health issues. Now, when I use the word significant, I'm talking about it affects something in your daily life, or it affects other people, or it affects society as a well. whole. So if you think of it that way, depression, anxiety are the two most common things. And what happens when you have additional stress in life? is depression and anxiety in particular start increasing. So COVID is an illustration of an epidemic and the way you cope with an epidemic. So the COVID itself produces anxiety. Will I get infected? What happens if I get infected? Will I infect somebody? And it can, if the more you think about it and the more you worry about it, this is actually a good thing to do. But when it exceeds the range of worrying about it, then it actually makes things even worse. But the second part to all this is the actions that you're asked to take and you have to take to protect yourself and others. The word we use is social isolation, which in effect means social distance, which in effect means don't have as much connection to other people. 
Now, humans really live in a world when you have to engage with other humans. When you don't engage, one of the first things you start feeling is feeling love. So social isolation and social distancing by itself leads to depression and leads to anxiety. So, Nick, let's pause here for a moment. I don't think there was anything particularly surprising in that first bit of the interview, but it has me reflecting on the stressors of the pandemic because it feels like everyone kind of has their own. Uh, You hear jokes about this being a great time for introverts, and I'm feeling that a little bit uh, in my life. I've kind of enjoyed not having to deal with social obligations, but I have friends who are really struggling because they haven't been able to do the things that they're used to doing and enjoy doing. But as a person who enjoys time to myself, I haven't been alone in 10 months. So what are your thoughts here about the stressors? Well, I definitely enjoy time to myself. Anyone who knows me even a little bit knows I'm far off to the introvert side of the introvert extrovert spectrum. And I remember during the first maybe couple of months of the pandemic, I kind of considered it a vacation from social obligations, sort of like you said. But more recently, I found myself wanting to have at least the option to get out and about in the world. Whether I would pursue that option in every case is another matter, but it would be good to have the option. So even we introverts, at least me, uh, are looking forward to the day when social patterns get back to something closer to normal. In the next part of the interview, we get into the important topic of seeking help. Even though people are talking, you have to isolate yourself in terms of safe distance. It doesn't mean you isolate totally social. Social distance doesn't mean that you don't talk to people, that you don't communicate with people that you don't continue to remain engaged with your friends, your family, and others. And that's important. It's important for your own health, but it's also important for their health and their well-being. It is not the same, obviously, as meeting people individually or meeting people in small groups or going to large groups. We can't do that, but we can engage socially in a remote environment. And even though it's not the same, it is still a good thing to do. So that's one. Second is to recognize. Recognize when you're feeling more tense, when you're more jumpy, and when you really feel down. If you feel down and it persists, it is time to seek help. It is time to call. It is time to go in and seek help if you need to actually go in. But at least a very simple thing to do is to call other people you know. And by the way, if you don't have other people you know, there are hotlines to call. All these are designed to help you get at least remote assessment and remote treatment. But you have to make that or initiate the call. The other side of it, you may see your friends, you may see your co-workers, you may see your neighbors not looking good, not looking right, or you're starting to see some pattern. They're not sleeping. They don't seem to be going out and eating properly. They may be seeming to be a little more withdrawn. Even if you see that on Zoom, You know it's not right. You know it's not them in the way you've normally seen them. All those things tell you maybe you should intervene by calling them up, talking to them, see if something is going on, and if something is indeed going on, and if they need help, to figure out a way to get them the help they need. So first, looking out for yourself. Second, looking out for your friends, neighbors, and family. A little bit about with employment and people, how do you look out for your employees? 
So if you're talking about employees in today's world, many of them are working from home. So you actually don't know how it's affecting them. Making it a routine point to reach out to them and see how they are doing is really important to do now. Because depending on their own personal situation, many of them depended on the workplace as a source of engagement. When they are now isolated, they may be feeling more withdrawn, more disengaged, more depressed, or more anxious. Just reaching out and checking on them as an employer, as a supervisor, really makes a big difference. This feels like another really important point to discuss. Um, Ever since I did this interview, I find myself looking around a little more when I'm on video calls or chatting a little more with coworkers to kind of get a feel for how people are doing. Um, I am a classic oversharer. Nick, you and I have worked together for almost six years, so you know this about me. You always know if something is bothering me, but Nick, you tend to keep your head down a little bit. So how do you feel about somebody checking on you in this way or raising their hand and saying, you know, hey, Nick, you you don't look like yourself. Are you are you doing okay? I'd rather be checked on at times where maybe I don't want to be checked on as opposed to never checked on. That would just make me feel like I'm out on an island all by myself with no recourse. And, and you and I are fortunate to work for a company in HFMA where the culture is such that I know if I ever got into a situation in which the stress of this whole pandemic was affecting me to the point where my productivity or my output was suffering, that would be accommodated. And so just knowing that support system is available, it's really important, I find. And I, so I personally think everyone should be checked on periodically, even if some of us maybe don't sound all that enthusiastic when it happens. In our January 13th episode where we talked about working parents, this kind of thing came up there too of having a culture in your organization where people feel that they can speak up if they need to and where they don't feel like they have to be the ones to initiate the conversation every time. You know, I think even if everybody seems fine, just having a proactive, you know, hey, how how are you doing today? How is your week going? Even that, I think, can sometimes prompt somebody to say, you know what, I really am struggling, where they might not be as willing to raise their hand and say they're struggling. Sometimes in those situations, some of us, we may say we're doing well, even though we're not doing you know, as well as we could be. But at least every now and then, I think we'll give you an honest answer. In the final piece of the interview that I'm going to share, Dr. Krishnan talks about the importance of seeking help if you are, in fact, struggling. The thing to know about it is not to feel ashamed and not to have stigma if you're feeling down or anxious. One has to expect it to be almost like a new normal for many people. And when it is that way, being able to recognize it's okay to feel that way and it's okay to reach out to people and okay to say what you're feeling and getting the help you need is extremely important. It is not okay to remain that way and let it ruminate, fulminate, and make it worse. That's what we're trying to avoid. What we're trying to avoid is the consequences. The consequences could be medical, not going in and seeking the help you need, and it could be the consequences of depression or anxiety or drug abuse leading to increased death, suicide, etc. All these things are ones that we want to avoid. We also want to avoid violence at home, which can happen when people stay at home and get upset and take it out on their loved ones. Not something they really want to do, but they do it because of the conditions under which they are. 
So all these things are expressions that are not good for the individual, the family, the neighbors, the community, and something we all should work towards to help alleviate. Mental health is part and parcel of who we are. If we don't recognize a change, if we don't recognize the need for help, then we really can run into problems. Keep in mind, resources are available. There are multiple ways we can get the help and remote help and remote treatment is very possible today, even if you cannot go in physically to get the help you need. So please, please do take care of your health. Please do take care of your mental health and please reach out whenever you need it. And as long as you recognize it for yourself or others, I think we'll all be in good shape to go through and come out of this pandemic and come back and restore our normal lives as quickly as possible. So those of you listening, if you take nothing else away from this episode, I hope this is what you'll take. If you are having suicidal thoughts, resources are available. The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is toll-free and available 24-7. That number is 800-275-8255. If you're in a domestic abuse situation, you can receive confidential support from the National Domestic Violence Hotline. Also toll-free, also available 24-7. Their number is 800-799-SAFE. So that's 800-799-7233. We will provide both of those numbers for you in the show notes as well. Patient payment is a hot topic with our membership all the time, but during the pandemic, it's become even more important. Recently, I talked with Maria Cancella, Executive Director of Field Services at Change Healthcare, about strategies to reduce uncompensated care and improve collection efforts while being sensitive to patient needs. There's several strategies that can help the providers proactively collect from the patient prior to delivering the care. And most providers are already doing this. But again, as we're talking about the pandemic and a lot of providers, facilities had to have their staff work from home, that created a gap in some of their collection efforts. So one of the things that you can focus on is identifying government-funded programs for self-paid population. And not only identifying the programs, but help the patient through this cumbersome application process. This can reduce the uncompensated care and provide as well what is really important for all providers is the community service that they are giving their patients by helping their self-pay population. There's another way that they can look at it because you have your EDs and at the ED, people come in quick, they live quickly. So one step that they can implement is ensuring that their patients that are involved in auto or work-related injuries that come through their ED are identifying on the front end. Sometimes these slip through the crack and the patient leaves and you're not able to verify the worker's comp at the time you have the patient there. What kind of expertise and tools are needed for the providers to be able to effectively secure financial assistance? Well, there are a combination of things that providers can do, one of which is technology and then having experienced staff in the eligibility enrollment or even in in how to collect the scripting to collections. So everybody knows about AI technologies, and this is a great way 
to help improve efficiencies. And really, we use it a lot for the outpatient realm. You know, there's a lot of patients coming in through your EDs. And so prioritizing with AI, patients that we think are maybe eligible or have a propensity to pay, whatever you can use technology to prioritize patients that really you can collect on. Not everybody's going to be eligible for a government program, and some people may just not be able to pay. Secondly, when we talk about enrolling people in programs that they may be eligible, you have a patient that come in through the hospital and they're inpatient. So seeing patients while they're in-house is key because once patients leave, as we all know, it's very difficult to get them back. They've got the service provided, they're gone, and it's hard to get in contact with the patient. So completing applications at bedside when you're in an inpatient scenario is critical. And even in your EDs, you can have financial counselors screen for payments. If they don't have insurance, then you can screen them to see if they're eligible for some assistant. Experienced staff is also important in trying to enroll these patients through, through the government programs. We've reiterated that several times, but the states have coverage for patients, but there also there's a big opportunity in patients that qualify for social security disability. And that application process is very cumbersome. It takes a long time to complete and you have to be skilled in determining what patient would be eligible. There are also innovative ways that you can engage your patients so that they respond to your letters or your calls. There is a behavioral science team that I have recently had interaction with in our Change Healthcare. And what they've done, and this is something we've done with our patients, so we have letters that we communicate with our patients. They have looked at all our letters and our scripting on how do we reach out to when we're having calls with patient. And they studied patient's behavior and they created letters so that it will engage our patients to call back to cooperate with whatever we need from them. So that is a very innovative way of doing some of the things and making it easier for patients to communicate with you. A lot of patients don't like you to call. Patients prefer that you text them or email them. And of course, it all has to be within regulation, but finding ways, multiple ways of reaching out to the patient population is important. The increase in uncompensated care and associated patient financial stress has underscored the need for a comprehensive approach to managing bad debt. Change Healthcare provides financial clearance and eligibility and enrollment services to help reduce uncompensated care as part of its broad portfolio of solutions that includes software, analytics, network solutions, and technology-enabled services that all help providers create a stronger, more collaborative healthcare system. Visit changehealthcare.com to learn more. Nick, before we close out, I want to talk about a couple of things that we have coming up with HFMA content. And you have a piece in particular that will be a really nice follow-up, I think, to this very podcast episode. Do you want to talk about that? Yes. So Jill Geisler is our contributing subject matter expert on leadership topics. She's been contributing monthly columns for about the last year and a half now. And in the March issue of HFM, she's writing about stress in the workplace and how leaders sometimes unknowingly contribute to stress and other times can be part of the solution in alleviating stress in their employees. 
So it's a very relevant topic, especially amid the pandemic. Stress is more rampant than even it usually is in the workplace and factors into the risk of burnout among employees, especially in healthcare. So very relevant piece, very timely and very insightful. I'm looking forward to reading that. And for anyone listening who uh, is a regular reader of Jill's column, um, she always has a lot of great insights to share, and she will be sharing them on an upcoming episode of Voices in Healthcare Finance. So I'm really excited to do this interview. She's going to be talking with us about the pitfalls of social media in the workplace. So I'm really looking forward to that conversation and learning what she has to say about the do's and don'ts of social media. I can't wait for that episode either. It should be very worthwhile. Voices in Healthcare Finance is produced by the Healthcare Financial Management Association and written and hosted by me, Erica Grotto. Sound editing is by Linda Chandler. Brad Dennison is our Director of Content Strategy. Our president and CEO is Joe Pfeiffer. Special thanks to our sponsor this week, Change Healthcare. As you've probably noticed, we've been covering more universal topics this year, more human topics, and I want to know what else you'd like to hear about. You can email our team at podcast at hfma.org. I was doing all right for a little while there.